concerns is coming from Matthew 5, verse 1 through 7. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor for those will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Pray for us. Dear God, we just want to thank you for all that you have done for us. My prayer this morning is that the momentous act of you uh, giving up your son for us, that it would sink in for us this week, and that you would help us to carve out some time to just sit in some silence and get to know you uh, and just reveal yourself to us throughout this week. I also want to pray and just thank you for um, something that was said to me this week, that sometimes you give us more than we can handle, um, even though the saying is that you will never give us more than we can handle. But sometimes you're given more um, just so that you can get to a breaking point, so that we can reach out to you um, uh, and get to know you better and just for us to realize that we can by ourselves and that we, we need you. So I pray that that just sinks into us this week um, and that you give Alan the words that you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name. Um, we're continuing our series through Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, taking it a verse at a time, really just in verse 7 this week. Um, and, and what we've been saying all along is that as we're going through these Beatitudes, these are not a call for us to try and become these things. Um, as if by uh, doing them, you might be a better Christian. You know, work on being uh, more meek. Uh, work at hungering and thirsting more for righteousness. Work at being more merciful. That, that, that's the way I think that most Christians tend to look at this passage. But that, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Rather, Jesus is saying that these are already the inevitable character traits of those who are citizens of my kingdom, because they have now a new heart. And this is what that new heart is like. This is how they act. Uh, this is the character traits that they possess. And see, what he's doing is he's, he's really giving this sermon in, in great contrast to what the Jewish religion around him had become, merely an outside-in guilt fest of external laws to be kept uh, and rules to obey, trying to prove and really earn your way into God's kingdom. In many ways, not a whole lot different than how uh, Bristol culture works today. And what Jesus says in that context is absolutely no. That's not how my kingdom works. My kingdom begins with a heart change. It's an inside-out transformation that produces a different kind of person. A person, as we said, who begins by seeing their great poverty of spirit. That is, they, they see they don't have any righteousness to offer to God. They're not capable of producing enough good works to earn any favor with God. And so they reach out to Jesus to be good in their place. 
And as a result, citizens of God's kingdom mourn over their sin. See, religious people are good at pining over their sin. They beat themselves up in hopes that they can maybe discipline better behavior. And of course, irreligious people celebrate the freedom to pursue their sins, right? Because they're fun. You know, I'm in charge and I'm free to be me. But Jesus, as a Christian, mourns that sin even exists. They're brokenhearted that stupidity and rebellion are so natural for me, I just can't seem to stop it. See, they mourn over the brokenness, not just of their own hearts, but of the world and how it's gone off the rails. And as a result, citizens of Jesus' kingdom are meek. That is because they have a right view of themselves and they stand before God as poor and pitiful and blind and naked, and yet they're recipients of such amazing grace. As a result, they have nothing to boast about. They have nothing to defend before other people. There's no basis for impatience or condescending attitudes. So your relationships with the world are radically different. Rather, Jesus says that citizens of my kingdom long to be filled with righteousness, with holiness, to, to be like Jesus, to be able to know God, to know what he wants uh, from us and how to pursue him with all that we have. Now, Today we come to what I think is probably the most difficult of these Beatitudes to display, at least in the current culture in which we live. Blessed are the merciful. Uh, because, listen, the virtue of mercy has nearly been obliterated from our culture. It just doesn't exist anymore. we become a culture of anger and bitterness, actively looking for ways to make people pay for their mistakes or simply pay the price for not agreeing with me. Lobbying blame and accusation at people that we don't agree with. Trying to cancel and destroy, and in some cases even kill, people who just annoy us. And I think few of us realize just how much these ways of thinking have become a part of us. Uh, so we have little patience with other people. We often find life from watching our political opponents get owned on Facebook and Twitter. But Jesus says that citizens of his kingdom are merciful people. They're, they're patient with that driver, right? Even if they're behind that person. There are people who look for the best in other people, and they praise them for that, even if it's pretty hard to find in some people. Even if the other 90% of them totally annoys us, we can pick out that 10% and affirm that and praise them for it. Uh, citizens of Jesus' kingdom, he says, are not those who... Um, find life from nitpicking with their spouse, looking for wrongs to bank up for the day that we need that get-out-of-jail-free card. We just don't act that way. So how are you doing so far? I think it kind of nails us all. But you listen, listen. Jesus has already said to this point that it's not, it's not being perfect. Uh, it's not always getting it right that he's after. What he's saying is, does it grieve your heart when you act in these ways? Or... Are you always finding good excuses for your impatience? I mean, they deserve it, right? Or maybe you're trying to make up for your shortcomings by doing good things somewhere else. Or, or maybe you're comparing the, the, the bitter responses of your heart with far worse reactions from people out there. So what I'm doing really isn't that bad. Now, Jesus says that citizens of his kingdom are grieved of their sins. So they're not making any excuses to justify it. Now, the first thing I want us to see from this passage is how, once again, Jesus here is not talking about becoming a more merciful person. Rather, he's talking about being a merciful person. 
See, this is dealing with being, not doing. He's talking about the attitude of your heart and not merely the actions that you can take on. I mean, Jesus certainly gets to our actions later on in the sermon, and we'll get to them. But, he, but it starts, he says, with an attitude of the heart. It starts with this inside-out character change of who you are. And, and as a result, a Christian is something before they ever do something. In other words, you can't just try to be a good Christian in certain aspects of your life. And, and maybe I'll, I'll work on being merciful for a while. No, he, he's, he's talking about what you already are in attitude. And it was, it was uh, Jonathan Edwards who, frankly, discouraged us with this little insight. He said, take a look at the demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And find the area where you're the weakest. Right? Find the area where you struggle the most in that list. And that, he says, reveals the level of supernatural transformation that the Spirit has brought to your life. Because his argument is, these are not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit. It's one thing. And so whatever you're weakest at is where God has been at work. And everything above that line is merely your natural disposition. <coughs> or maybe the learned behavior that you've taken on to function in a civil society. Or in some cases, even the fake fruit we create to make us look more Christian and good and holy than we really are. But you see, your, your Christianity is not something that you can control. You, si you simply cannot take up merciful actions as a substitute for already being merciful. Paul says we are new creatures in Christ and we've been given new hearts and new disposition. And that's why the Bible continually says, listen, to do this, you must be born again. Christianity is not a set of character traits to take on. It's either who you already are on the inside or it's not, but you cannot create it. In fact, I, I think this is why these Beatitudes are so searching, so convicting, because, again, they're not things to take on to be a good Christian. They're more of a mirror that are held up in front of our eyes to look at your own life and ask, is, is, there, is that really who I am? From the inside out, is, is that my heart? Is that my attitude? See, you, you can't fake being merciful here on Sunday and then honk and gesture and bitterness to stupid drivers on the way home. Or maybe get in a fight with your spouse on the way home about something. See, Christianity is something you can put on when it's convenient to you. You're, you're in the right crowd and lay aside depending upon your mood. Jesus is saying, flat out, the citizens of my kingdom are merciful. It's who they are. It's what their character is like from the inside out. It's a direct result of seeing that you are poor in spirit and yet completely filled with Jesus. Okay, so then what does it mean to be merciful? What does it actually mean? If it's not merely doing merciful things, what is it? Well, I want to start by saying what it's not, because there's a very prominent counter, uh, <clears throat> counterfeit in our day. Uh, it is not simply being laid back, uh, always walking away from any confrontation with other people, never judging anybody for anything. You know, just be an accepting person uh, of everybody. See, those, those are really the best that secular society can come up with today. They're really woke counterfeits to what mercy really is. Because clearly it cannot mean that, because Jesus was merciful to perfection, and yet he was always pushing confrontation. And he was never laid back and said, well, you know, don't let me be the judge. I'm, I'm just a God of love. I mean, never. He's, he's the Lion of Judah. He's the great judge of the earth. And so it can't mean that. 
That's a modern-day counterfeit. And see, I think it's helpful to remember, again, that there are some prerequisites to being merciful. See, you have to see yourself as absolutely poor in spirit, having no righteousness of your own. You have to mourn over your sin instead of justifying it. You have to be meek because there's nothing in you to boast about. You have to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which makes you zealous for the truth. And you see, in Jesus, what we find is that justice and mercy meet together in him, and only in him. I mean, you know how this works in our world. You can either be harsh and judgmental, or you can be laid back and you can be merciful. Or if you're a typical person, you bounce back and forth depending on what the situation is. But you see, Jesus says, in, in me, you can be both at the same time. Truth and justice. So what is mercy? I, I think really it's helpful maybe to contrast it with um, its uh, sister, Grace, because they are distinct. You know, Paul often begins, I think most of his pastoral epistles, by saying, Grace mercy, and peace to you. So he delineates them there uh, because I don't think they're exactly the same thing. It, as you look in the Bible, I think what grace seems to be indicating is how God deals with us in our sins. Not treating us as our sins deserve, but placing them upon Jesus instead. It's God viewing us as righteous when we deserve punishment. It's dealing with our legal standing before God. He deals with us with grace. Whereas mercy seems to be more how God deals with our misery because of sin. It's having compassion on our broken hearts. Maybe a sense of pity and tenderness for how enslaved we are by our sin. In short, mercy is just having empathy for people, plus having a desire to do something to alleviate it. It's compassion plus action. And see, when you have the power to hold something over somebody else because maybe they've wronged you or maybe you've caught them in some lie. Uh, you always have two choices. Either you can exact payment from them. You can make them pay by exposing them, by embarrassing them, by making them feel small, even by just sitting back and chuckling while they get theirs. Or you can have empathy because you know how enslaved they are by that thing. You know what it's like because you're enslaved yourself. And so you long not only to forgive, but you want to see them free from the effects of that sin. Because listen, whenever any offense occurs, any kind of offense, somebody has to pay. See, you can't ever say, well, just forget it. I mean, <coughs> talk that way, it's not possible. It can't just go away. You can't say that to a hurt that somebody has done against you any more than you can say that about maybe student loan debt, right? I mean, you can forgive it, all right. You can declare it's forgiven, but it always has to go somewhere. <clears throat> Somebody has to pay. And, and when there's an offense, either you make the other person pay by giving them what they deserve, or even wishing that they would get what they deserve, or you take the payment yourself by choosing to pay with your forgiveness. And the payment for forgiveness is costly. Again, it doesn't just go off into nowhere. And, and listen, I say all this because it's especially challenging for us when you see somebody that you despise actually getting theirs. Let's just say, for example, you see a, a prominent anti-police politician that gets robbed and beat up, right? Do you have compassion that that robbery took place? That it was wrong, that things like that shouldn't happen? Or do you secretly smile at karma got They got their just desserts, right? Serves them right. 
they got a taste of their own medicine. Now they get to know what that feels like. See, mercy has compassion on the hurt of sin. And it longs to do something to free them from it. Because you're a meek person who recognizes your own poverty of spirit. And therefore, you've got nothing to boast about as compared to that person. You've got nothing to prove. You can look past the offense of what someone says or does, even when they're really stupid. And you can say, man, I get it. I do the same things all the time. It sucks that we're all caught up in this vicious cycle of self-protection. I'd really like to help you get free from this. And of course, listen, that's exactly what we've received from God, right? Jesus is the perfect example of mercy. Because from heaven, he saw our plight. He saw how pitiful and poor and blinded we were by our sins. Our sins were not merely an offense against somebody who was no better than we are, but he's our, our creator, he's our designer. And we rebelled against him. You know, I, I think the greatest words in the Bible are summed up in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were thumbing our noses at him, he chased after us. While we were rejecting him as our rescuer, he entered into the fray of humanity. And he took on the, the sheer humility of flesh and blood in order to rescue us. In order to even wake us up to our need of being rescued in the first place. See, the Bible says that Jesus saw us as helpless sheep, wandering and lost aimlessly, without a shepherd. But even worse, actually hating our shepherd. And yet his sheepdogs of goodness and mercy have followed us all the days of our lives. And they have chased us down until he rescued us. I mean, think about it. Even the miracles that Jesus performed were examples of being moved by compassion to bring healing from the suffering of this world. Suffering that we unleashed upon the, the world by our own rebellion against him. And yet he has compassion. And he does something about it. Because I want you to remember, Jesus never came to earth in order to reward the good people. I mean, that's what religious people tend to think. Rather, he came for rebels and rejects and losers in order to adopt them into sons and daughters. Because he says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And that's us. If you see yourself as poor in spirit. See, Jesus had compassion on our brokenness. And he came and he did something about it. And then I want you to notice Jesus' conclusion where he says, For they will receive mercy. Now, this has, to be honest, been a very troubling passage over the years for a lot of people. Because it almost sounds like it is Jesus saying, If I'm merciful to others, then God will be merciful to me. Can I earn God's forgiveness by being merciful to others? I mean, is that what he means when he says in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? Is there a cause and effect going on here? Well, I think to answer that, I want to turn our attention to an entire parable that Jesus devoted to explaining just how this works. It's, the, it's in Matthew chapter 18. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in that parable, Jesus... Uh, depicts a man who owes a debt so great that he's never, ever in his lifetime going to be able to pay it back. Uh, in fact, modern translations convert it to about 10,000 bags of gold, where it would have been the equivalent of 200,000 years of a day laborer's wages. That's a lot of debt, right? Uh, and this man, this he begged for mercy, right? I, I can never pay this back, have mercy on me. And, and the man did, and he forgave all of his debt. But then this man who was forgiven this vast debt went out and found a man who owed him a few silver coins. 
And again, it's translated to about a, one day's worth of wages. And this man did the same thing. He said, look, I'm never going to be able to pay this back. Please forgive me. And he wouldn't. He demanded payment. And he had him thrown into a debtor's prison until he could work it off. And when the servants of the man who forgave the first bigger debt saw this, they reported it to their master. And he was rightly furious, right? How could you have been so callous with such a small debt when you were forgiven such a great debt? And so he goes back and he calls it the full debt that he's owed. And what Jesus says is, guys, that's it. That is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive from the heart. Now, what's going on here? What is he saying? Listen, the call here is not to be more merciful. Rather, it's a logical reminder that if you've been forgiven of such a great debt, how could you not forgive this little one? And see, clearly Jesus isn't saying here, you're only going to be forgiven to the degree that you can forgive somebody else, because first of all, none of us can do that, right? I mean, we should, but we won't. Uh, and if that was the case, none of us would ever be forgiven of anything, because we're incapable of it. But even more to the point, if we believe that our forgiveness was tied to our ability to forgive others, then that would negate the entire doctrine of grace. Because again, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we chose to not be sinners, while we were his enemies. So what is he saying then? I think what he's saying is that I'm only truly forgiven when I'm truly repentant. And I'm only truly repentant when I see that I deserve nothing but punishment. I'm not owed anything except judgment. And yet I've received mercy. And therefore, any forgiveness that I do receive, it has to come from grace. It has to be because God gave Jesus what I deserve and he gave me what Jesus deserves. Because there's no other way. And it means that if I really understand all this, and it's real and it sinks in, then I will naturally forgive others when they commit these petty offenses against me. I mean, how could I not? See, I will become a merciful person if I truly understand what it means to have received mercy. And listen, this, this is one of the key ways that we apply the gospel to our hearts. We, we don't say, you know... I should forgive because it's the Christian thing to do, even though it is. We don't say, I need to forgive or I won't be forgiven, though that's true as well. But you see, what the gospel does teach us to say is, having been forgiven such a huge debt that I could never pay, how can I hold this small thing over another person's head? I can't. And if I do, it only shows that what Jesus did for me it's never been received by my heart. It's never melted my heart. Or else maybe I've forgotten it. And I need my heart freshly exposed and stunned by how foolish I'm acting. <clears throat> because again, I want you to follow the logical flow of the Beatitudes here. If I'm poor in spirit, I have no righteousness of my own. And as I stand before God, I cannot minimize my sin by saying, well, at least I wasn't as bad as she is. No, no, there's nothing good in me to point to. So instead of minimizing my sin or justifying my sin or defending it, I grieve over the foolishness of it. I cry out, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And this leads to a heart then that's been made meek. I'm a bundle of nothing but need. And yet I've been loved. And I've been given more than I could ever imagine. So there's nothing in me to boast about. There's nothing in me to be able to compare myself to somebody else. And then this leads me to hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. Because if I can't earn validation by what I do or what I don't do, then I still need to find my validation somewhere because I can't live without validation. And so it drives me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I want you to think about this. If all of that is true, what is the only logical conclusion? That jerk needs to be told off, right? Those stupid people need to be exposed for the hypocrites that they are. That person who's falling behind needs to be exposed so that I can feel better. I can't wait for them to get theirs. I mean, no, how could that be? See, the only logical conclusion here is that when I see all these stupid people doing all these stupid things, and when I see all these hypocritical people doing all these hypocritical things that I am gripped with and I am saddened by and I empathize with, these fellow messed up travelers who are just as much a slave to their stupid sins as I am to mine. And I long for them to be free from theirs as I wish to be free from mine. Listen, you cannot self-righteously bash the ridiculous things that people say and do. Not if you're a person who's been transformed by an awareness of your own poverty of spirit. See, proud, self-righteous people who are full of justice can bash them. But if God's grace has come to me, rather than the justice that I deserve, then I have tremendous empathy for what these people are doing. Because for them, look, their entire identity as a person is on the line for them in this. I mean, no wonder they act that way. You know, it, it's all they know to do. They, they don't know any better. Of course they're desperate to protect themselves. They have nothing else to protect them. Let me just be really pointed here this morning because, you know, the timing of this is perfect. We're heading into another election this week. And listen, I know how easy it is to pile on to the worst statements of the worst candidates and feel superior to how stupid they are. I mean, some of them just make it far too easy. And, and, and to feel su superior through your outrage against what they're doing. To feel even personally victimized by their conduct. And you want nothing more than to show them who's really boss around here with a really big win. And I can't wait to hear all the crying and whining on MSNBC when we take over and they get smashed, right? Listen, when's the last time you wept with sorrow over Stacey Abrams advocating for abortion because of how much cheaper it would be for parents and what a solution it would be to the problem of recession. When's the last time that you grieved over what Anne Hathaway said this week, that abortion can be another word for mercy? I mean, of course that's stupid. Of course it's foolish. But we're all stupid. We're all foolish. Sin makes fools of us all. And rather than mock her stupidity or disdain her worldview, points of view in order to feel superior to her or smarter than her or more holy than she is, can you weep that she is so enslaved by her desires for control that she's willing to commit murder to do it? And to say that that murder is a good thing. Because, hey, now there's less mouths to speak. Can, can you weep for the brokenness that would enable an entire nation to reduce the preciousness of life to a financial commodity? Well, I think you can if you see that you're doing the very same things. In maybe different ways. When you honk and yell at stupid drivers, you're consumed by the selfishness of me and my space and my time. When you take advantage of the, 
how to put this, the inarticulate language of your spouse and pounce on what they said, you're sucking the value out of their failure. When, get close to danger here, when, when you cheer an egotistical narcissist because he's the first president to put these liberals in their place, you're not grieving over the simple ways that sin is being exposed. You're sucking righteousness out of the exposure of the very same hypocrisy that resides in your own heart. And listen, as horrific as it is for Stacey Abrams and Anne Hathaway to be cheering the murder of innocent babies, and you self-righteously say, man, it couldn't get any worse than that. <coughs> yes, it can. And it did. Because you and I killed the son of man. And he forgave you. And we need to let that sink in. Listen, a person who has received mercy, the grace of forgiveness that he didn't deserve because of the mercy of a God who grieved over the mess that we made out of this world, is a person who's transformed into a new creature of mercy themselves. And that mercy is able to grieve over the sins that you see around you rather than trying to suck life out of the foolish mistakes of others. You take no pleasure and exposing the foolishness of others because you're no better. And you were forgiven. Listen, I, I gotta be honest. I think the average Christian today looks for more hope in winning the culture wars, more hope in winning elections than they do in the mercy and the grace of God toward them. Do you see that God does not treat you as your sins deserve? Do you see that God was moved with compassion to free you from the slavery that would cause you to reject your maker? Do you see that God is patient and kind with you every day, even when you chase after other sources of love and validation? See, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you see that, then how can you be anything but compassionate, anything but merciful and gracious with the sinful expressions of a lost world around us? How can you be anything but grieved over it and driven by compassion to find ways to find, seek healing and freedom from the things that have people in their grips? And listen, Jesus concludes here by saying, then you will be shown mercy. And I don't think he's saying that doing this grants you mercy. This is not a quid pro quo going on here. Rather, I think there's, there's a very real sense in which this is actually how you experience God's mercy yourself. Because see, you cannot be merciful to somebody who doesn't deserve it without also seeing how you received mercy that you didn't deserve. And the more that you can act with mercy and react with mercy toward those who don't deserve it either, because God has given you a merciful heart, the more merciful you will actually feel and experience and enjoy. But I think it's also a promise that when you need to extend mercy to those who don't deserve it, when you need to extend mercy when it's really, really, really hard in this situation, I think this is a promise where God says, I will grant you the mercy that you need by reminding you of the mercies that you've been given in Christ. Listen, genuine mercy melts hearts to be merciful to others. And when you show mercy to others, you're proclaiming the mercies that you have been shown, and it's an offer of hope that's extended to the world to, to come and experience the fullness of mercy that this small act of mercy is represented. Listen, do you grieve with sorrow over the stupidity that sin produces in others? Or do you try to find life from seeing your enemies get owned and exposed? 
when your life comes from Jesus, you can grieve over that sin. When you get your life from comparing yourself to others, you need your enemies to be embarrassed. Remember, while you were still a stupid sinner doing stupid things, Jesus died for you to rescue you. And I think that's why he can say, bless you be merciful, for they will receive mercy. Lord Jesus, we confess that we really aren't very merciful people. That so much of our lives are lived in a world of compassionless vindictiveness. Um, and, and it's so easy to try to find life from tearing down others, from exposing the obvious sins that are there. And yet we don't want ours exposed. We don't want to be seen for who we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us over and over and over again that we have been recipients of incredible mercy. That you didn't come to us because we wanted it. You didn't come to us because we deserved it. You chased us down because you had compassion and mercy upon us. And I pray that as we see that, that our hearts would be transformed into being merciful people toward those around us. But especially this week with elections going on and so much bashing and hate and destruction in our in our midst. I pray, Lord, mercy and compassion, and that we would set our hopes uh, for victory in 